Coming up on this week's show, Nintendo announced a huge new remake. A rare Mega Drive has been spotted. And we get the story of Atari's Pac-Man and Sword Quest with Todd Frost. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you want some good reading for the summer, check out PC Engine, the box art collection. Now, this incredible late 80s console just had so much vibrancy, sophistication, so much personality. And this covers some of the most interesting Japanese releases for this powerhouse system, including Adventure Island, Soldier Blade, Bomberman 93, Street Fighter 2, the Champion Edition, are coming in at 372 pages. This is definitely worth a read if you're a fan of the PC Engine. So you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project over the next couple of months, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service, and they give you low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards and services like 3D printing and injection moulding, and they're big supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 384, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another Geek Out session for the next hour-ish, talking about classic video games, bringing it up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And basically, if you recognise this sound... This is the podcast for you. And we've got to say happy 25th birthday to Windows 98 that celebrated his birthday this week. I saw, I saw Windows, it, yeah, they tweeted you and they actually said, uh, oh, thanks for remembering. <laughs> that yeah. was quite nice. <laughs> quite nice from a, a Twitter account with, I think it was 8.5 million followers. So if, uh, maybe you've discovered us through that. Welcome to the show. This is what we do every Friday. A little roundtable chat about what's been happening in retro over the last week. So, you know, we save you the effort of Googling around and all that stuff. We do it for you. And then we bring you an interview in the second half of the podcast. And my word, have we got a good one this week. Oh, I, I love it when we get pioneers on and people that, you know, we've wanted to have on the podcast since day one. And uh, Dan, you've absolutely smashed it with this week's guest. Now, this is Todd Fry. Who um, He was a man who was behind Atari's biggest selling cartridge for the 2600. And it wasn't a game that was without any controversy because um, he actually did the home port of Pac-Man. Now, have you guys played the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man before? I haven't played it, but I've seen it. It's got like the blue background, hasn't it? With like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know exactly which one it is. Quite a bit of a controversial one, wasn't it? Yeah, because I mean, it wasn't, obviously, it was very different to the arcade version. Mm. And it was kind of the, the flickering graphics were the thing that most people complained about back then. But actually, when we hear kind of Todd's design decisions about it, it goes really in depth into kind of why he went down that path back in the day. And also, what he might have done differently if he could kind of do it all again. And actually, what he might do differently, he's got some plans of maybe, you know, maybe redoing that at some stage, you oh, know, wow. no spoilers in there. But obviously, the other big thing he's known for, and uh, we definitely spend... The other half of the interview talking about this is the legendary Sword Quest series. Now, anyone that is a fan of Angry Video Game Nerd, I'm sure has watched uh, that video that you did a few years ago. I think that's definitely up there in my top five AVGN videos, the, the Sword Quest one. Yeah, absolutely. I think it could actually be my favourite episode, actually. Um, not, not just because of like the production of it and the music in there and everything like that, but the actual story 
of Sword Quest and like kind of like the rise and fall of it and you know with the well I say four games inverted commas and everything like that and kind of like what happened with the prizes and stuff like that is really interesting story so kind of like do you, do you guys kind of get the inside story from Todd then with that uh, do yeah you? yeah we do but we also talk about like you know the kind of pioneering days as well those early days with uh mainframes and uh Berkeley and Oh, just I kind of love hearing about the early days of Atari and stuff. It's it's really fantastic because this is like the foundation of our video games world. So it, it's so good to get him on. Yeah, I mean, we definitely do talk a lot about Sword Quest in here as well. Cause, I mean, for those who aren't familiar, it was a really interesting concept. It was um, in the early 80s. It was produced by Atari. It was meant to be a contest where there was three Finnish games, Earthworld, Fireworld and Waterworld. And then there's meant to be a fourth game called Airworld that obviously... That never got released back in the day. There was, you know, the video game crash and it kind of never happened. But you're right, Joe, the really interesting thing about that was there was real-life prizes for people mm. who could solve the puzzles, wasn't there? And these were, I mean, these were proper treasures. It was like a yeah. sword and a chalice. And a crown you know, these and were stuff, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, diamond encrusted and rubies and stuff on them. Worth a lot of money. And um, a couple of them were given out. And actually, we talked to Todd about kind of the whereabouts of them today. But the one that everyone kind of talks about is, you know, what happened to that last prize, the sword? And there's all these rumours that, you know, Jack Tramiel, who took over Atari, people said they spotted it kind of mounted above his fireplace in his house. And then when uh, Jack passed away a few years ago, and a lot of people were asking, well, you know, has anyone found the uh, the sword the sword of sorcery, I believe it was called? It's never turned up. So uh, we kind of get some of Todd's kind of thoughts on that and what may have happened to those. But also, interestingly, last year, as part of the Atari 50 celebrations, there was a version of that fourth game, Airworld, that was released. Mm. So we find out a bit more from Todd about kind of, you know, was he involved in that? Was that kind of his vision, you know, and really go in depth into all that. So it's really interesting. And I think, you know, whenever we cover stuff that really became a video game urban legend, it's always nice to kind of hear these stories, particularly ones that have been going around for like, what, 40 years now, to kind of get it from the horse's mouth and find out exactly what happened. So um, a really, really interesting chat. I know you're going to love this one. Todd Fry, the Atari superstar, is going to be our special guest, and he'll be on the podcast in around half an hour from now. Now, lots of new stories that have been making the headlines this week, including, uh, this one is particularly exciting because, I must admit, this is not a game I've played before, because we didn't actually get this back in the day, did we? This is the Super Mario RPG that Nintendo have announced a massive HD remake for the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, man, this uh, I'm really excited for this, so you are right, uh, Mario RPG, Super Mario RPG. Um, we didn't get it in Europe back in the day. Um, it came out on Super Nintendo in America and Japan in 1996. So really late, kind of like in the Super Nintendo kind of run, kind of on the cusp of the N64 coming out, or even as the N64 came out in Japan. Um, and obviously PlayStation and Sega Saturn had been out for a while by that point. But, you know, you know, we were still getting some Super Nintendo games, some late games and some late Mega Drive games and stuff like that. But just some of them just didn't come out over in Europe or you know, kind of had limited releases and stuff like that. But, you know, Super Mario RPG, Legend of the Seven Stars, really, really, really big game in America and Japan. And really great to see it getting some love because of there has been ways to, to play it, you know, in the UK in the past, um, obviously, other than emulation with like the virtual console and the Wii U virtual console. And it was also on the Super Nintendo Mini. But yeah, it's getting, you know, the HD remaster remake, which is going to be coming to the Switch 
on 17th of November this year. So we've not got to wait too long for it, only four or five They've months. timed that well, haven't they? They know everyone's yeah. going to be thinking, what can I get my Christmas stock in this year? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and off the back of the success of the Super Mario movie as well, you know, it's cool yeah. to see <laughs> Nintendo Direct, you know, doing all these new Mario games that are coming and the, there's the Peach game as well, which just makes complete sense. So, but yeah, so Super Mario. Is, is this kind of like a Final Fantasy style RPG? Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So yeah, Super Mario RPG, it was a... You know, it's kind of like a, a a gateway into Japanese kind of RPGs, JRPGs. It's a, it's 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 you know, it's a turn-based RPG, very similar to early Final Fantasy games, kind of like you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, you know, and you use magic and you take it in turns to attack each other, and you have a party of three, and then you obviously you're fighting monsters and stuff like that. Really enjoyed it when I played it on emulation as a teenager. Can't remember the exact story, um, but I remember, you know, you get Peach and Bowser in your party and you can, you know, Bowser's, you know, kind of a good guy, if you will, because there's a greater enemy. So you have to team up with him and you can use him as a character and stuff like that, which is really fun. Um, And really loving that in the remake, they've kind of kept the chibi style graphics like, you know, Mario is quite a little stumpy Mario. In, and uh, I think he looks fantastic. Head. Yeah, with a big head. I think it looks really, really good. Um, and also, they've actually got some of the original, um, you know, developers working on it, which I think is really cool. The original composer has announced that she's going to be returning to compose on the remake as well. Yoko Shiramura, I think her name is. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, which is really cool. And what's quite interesting as well, as you said, Dan, it's. Um, Super Mario RPG, the original, was um, it was a partnership between Nintendo and Square, mm. now Square Enix, who did the Final Fantasy games. Um, and I didn't see their logo anywhere kind of in the trailer prominently, but they are at the bottom, kind of like running across, you know, the bottom of the screen at the end, at the end of the trailer, that they are involved. So I don't know if it's just a case of like licensing or if they've actually, you know, are supporting in the development of the game. But, you know, either way, it's cool. It's it's weird because um, I've I've played some RPGs and stuff and I do like playing them on you know the big screen and stuff but mm. they seem to fit well on a like handheld yeah. or a portable console and just having this on the Switch is just going to be really nice like I, yeah I've, I've always kind of like thought I want to replay Final Fantasy and sit down with a Switch and kind of go through it you know yeah I think I think you're totally right and if you're not too keen on RPGs or familiar with them i think this is definitely going to be a good kind of like way to get into them or even just experience it and just play it and just like you know oh yeah i played that rpg i enjoyed that one thing that was in the original which i'm really hoping is going to be in the remake there is a secret boss uh, an interdimensional demon in the original called uh Kulex, um who's mm. actually i believe from a final fantasy game one of the earlier ones who you could fight in the original RPG, and he's really out of place. He's really out of place in the Super Mario <laughs> RPG because he's like a big demon with like sprite artwork of like Final Fantasy. Whereas, and everything else is all cute. And yeah, everything squishy. else is all cute and squishy, <laughs> and then it's like that silicon, uh, silicon graphics kind of style, very similar to yeah. Donkey Kong. And he's just like this big pixelated like <laughs> monster. Um, I think it would be wicked if he's in the uh, if he's in the remake, or even if it's just. Uh, a well-known Final Fantasy boss in the remake as a hidden boss would be fantastic. And that looks like there's loads of little mini games in there and stuff. And yeah. As you're kind yeah, of yeah. exploring the world, you're, you're doing different things. And I love the pace of, you know, turn-based games as well, actually. Mm. It, it does, like, make you relax a bit more and just kind of get really into it and invest in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it, it's not like a, you know, um, it's hard to describe, but some, some RPGs, they get into, like, the 
you know, as you level up, your your attacks start doing thousands of millions of damage and bosses have, you know, 10 million HP. It's all quite nice and steady. Like, you know, everybody's got a couple of hundred HP and every attack does a couple of hundred of attack and stuff like that. It's all very, it's, it's, it's nice and it's simple. And I think Nintendo will probably keep it that way for the remake and they know what they're doing, you know. Yeah, and kind of watching this as well, something that, I mean, I'm, I'm not all that familiar with the RPG genre. Um, I know this kind of inspired, like, Paper Mario, which mm-hmm. you know, I've played that briefly, and Mario and Luigi as well. Um, but the fact that it's kind of got that humour in there as well, which, you know, you, you don't often see in a lot of these kind of games from what I've seen. Yeah. Which I think is definitely a nice little bonus, you know, something that makes it a bit more friendly to people who aren't. I mean, it does feel like a genre to me where there are people that are really hardcore into yeah. JRPGs, and, like, it doesn't always feel the most welcoming genre for newcomers. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah. Help with that. yeah, I agree. I mean, even myself, like I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest RPG guy, but I used to love them. And now like, you know, trying to get into kind of like more modern ones and stuff, I, I do struggle because um, mm. so many of them are, you know, so far along in their sequels and stuff like that, like Fire Emblem. I mean, Final Fantasy, you can kind of pick up because it's always a different kind of a new story, but... Yeah, sometimes I, I get a bit overwhelmed with how many are out there and now. It's all so, about the stats and all of that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. 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 Mario RPG keeps it keeps it simple. Um I recommend it. Absolutely. Yeah. I know a lot of people have been kinda of hoping that the original would come to the Nintendo Switch online, you know, the Super Nintendo games. But yeah. um actually it looks like, you know, they're, they're getting spoiled rotten because they're doing a full HD remaster of it mm-hmm. as well. So that's gonna be coming out in time for Christmas this year in November. So if you want to check out the trailer, it looks absolutely beautiful. I'll put that in our show notes and the rest of the stories at the retrohour.com. Now Joe, you like to think you know your uh your Mega Drive, your, your Sega Genesis quite well? Uh yeah. Yeah, quite familiar <laughs> with them. <laughs> what about this? Have you ever seen a white Sega Mega Drive before? I haven't. I've seen Ravi's white game gear. Yeah, mm, that, that which, was a, a developer's one. So there were only yeah. 10,000 of those made. And yeah. uh, I think for some reason they kind of made the developer's ones white, but um, they were they were pretty much in Japan only. Yeah, and, you know, they're super rare, 10,000, like you say. But um, apparently, well, there's no apparently about it. It, it. It's true. There was a white Sega Mega Drive, well, Sega Genesis, and there was two of them made. And they've kind of... I want to say surfaced this week, but they haven't surfaced. They've been spotted in a documentary, which has got footage from 1992, hasn't it? It's a basketball documentary. And, um, you know, I've been watching a lot of basketball documentaries, actually. And the footage is so good because all of that stuff was massively documented. And, like, Mm. you know, you see the technology at the times. They zoom into old CRT TVs and stuff. Um, There's one I recommend called The Last Dance, which is just... Mm absolutely amazing i think it was on netflix um but just even for the kind of nostalgia like i wasn't into basketball back in the days but just seeing the kind of association with like games as well you know Mm. nba jam and stuff there was there was a huge kind of connection with basketball and gaming yeah well this is it's it's a new documentary that's um, been made about the former san antonio spurs basketball player david robinson but you're right it has got footage in there of him playing uh, Sega Genesis back in 1992. Now, this was picked up from a, uh, a Twitter user called Console Variations, who, you know, by the name, I imagine 
looks for, you know, rare different versions of consoles, who spotted this uh, white Sega Genesis, slash Mega Drive, as we call it over here, and he basically freaked out and was like, what the hell is this? You know, yeah. does anyone know what this is? Give us a story behind this console. And then a few people replied, including a guy called Don Transeth. Now, turns out that Don is the former vice president of sports marketing and brand innovation at EA, and he mm. was one of the guys that launched the EA Sports brand back in the day. Mm. So um, I managed to get a hold of him, and he explained a bit about kind of what was going on. Obviously, back then, they really wanted to get associated with professional sports, and they became the official video game supplier of the American team because, obviously, they were the exclusive NBA game. So what they did is they actually set up a gaming lounge in the player's hotel. So they got a lot of the, the players around to basically play the game on a Genesis. Yeah. So what they did is make a, a custom console just so it'd stand out, really. And it turned out they made their own white version of it. Now, the way they did this sounds quite interesting because it said that they tried to use just regular paint. Yeah. Which, you know, if you guys have tried that, it never really looks all that good. I remember trying to paint an Amiga back in the day and it just looked... Yeah, <laughs> it's because it's like the, the the plastic that the consoles were kind of made out of. They just don't take well to it, do mm. they, at all? Um, but yeah, re- really interesting because they, they ended up using car paint, didn't they? Like Chevrolet yeah. <laughs> Corvette paint that just took to it really well. Um, yeah, it and apparently it looked really nice. I, yeah. I, and they made two of those, and they also put a Team USA basketball sticker uh, on the console as well to make it look official. Like you said, they made two of these. The only thing is, I mean, obviously the next question is, what happened to them? I think they I think they look really cool because they've kept all the buttons on there black. Yeah, well. I like that. So it's yeah. kind of got that nice like black and white contrast and it does feel like EA, you know, a, a mm. white Mega Drive. Yeah, it's um what I like about it is it's kind of like cuz when the EA games first came out they were like the black and yellow boxes. Mm. But then as you kind of started to get to 92, 93 and especially as FIFA was coming out and stuff like that. They they kind of started putting the games out in the white boxes, and you know the EA branding became that like white logo with the you know the blue E and the red A. It kind of moved away from the old Electronic Arts, you know, with the the square, the circle and the square and the triangle. You know, I think it was yellow, purple, and green. And mm. By that point, they're moving to that white branding that you know I think they still use to this day. Um, so I think the white Mega Drive with the black buttons, like you say, Ravi, I think it just looks slick and it suited it really well. I'm hoping that this is going to turn up in like EA's archives, you know, I hope yeah. it's still in there somewhere or maybe a former employee is going to be like, actually, I think I might have seen that in my attic and yeah. uh, actually or it's going to be a bit of a hunt for it now. Or it'll turn up at a car boot sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As they like, always seem to. Oh, you're spotted in CEX next week. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. 200,000 pounds or something. Um, does look very cool though. And actually, I think, you know, maybe it's going to, cause a few people to be like actually maybe i'll make my own version of uh, the white yeah. Mega drive it, well it's quite simple to make we're in a world where the nintendo playstation can actually be found so yeah. uh, you know exactly. this isn't uh, beyond the realms of possibility hope is out there now one thing we want to talk about with our guest todd fry in just a moment well we actually get into like the early days of microcomputers, and we we're talking about stuff like you know the altair and stuff like that obviously back then i mean in the in the late 70s and even in the early 80s i mean with stuff like the zx80 you know over here in the uk it was quite a common thing to buy a kit computer. Now, these were machines that, you know, instead of buying them fully assembled from Dixon's or somewhere like that, you'd actually send off mail order. They'd ship you a box full of the parts, and then you'd have to solder and put them together yourself. Oh, a lot, a lot of the early micros were like that, weren't they? They were, they were yeah. just kind of kit computers. And I don't know about you, Ravi, but I've always kind of looked back on that a bit kind of with a bit of a warm glow thinking. Because that's kind of that hobbyist thing, isn't it? Because I remember being at school and building, you know, like kind of Morse code transmitters and 
little radios at yeah like and um, stuff like that when i was growing up i used to have a little electronics kit and quite a few people did actually and uh mm. you know you, i still got scars from soldering irons <laughs> on my fingers I yeah think. you'd have hundreds of um projects and uh i don't know if you can hear an ice cream van driving by in the background <laughs> we can yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> a can sun, it's a sunny day here but um <laughs> yeah it's it's just absolutely cool to do uh, and something that i would try and attempt these days because i've had a bit more soldering experience um i was always kind of worried about ruining kit and kind of playing stuff but uh this this kind of looks absolutely fantastic so this is the micro beast which is a love the name yeah <laughs> by a company uh called fearsome and um just kind of spotted this online and i thought what a good project to to either do yourself or you know even do with the kids you know maybe you do the soldering they kind of pick the parts and talk about it and um it's it's quite a small little kind of self-contained unit and um what it does is it runs cpm so um you can have it connected by USB-C, which is really cool. So it can get the power and you can have it connected by USC and it works uh, through the communication. So you can have the comms on, on a PC, uh, talk like a terminal. Yeah. Talk to the machine yeah. through the terminal. Um, there's like a really nice display over the top and I quite like the keyboard as well. It, it looks really clicky. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, That's the thing back in the day, stuff like the ZX80 that had those kind of, you know, dead flesh kind of chiclet kind of keyboards, didn't they? But this looks like it's got, you know, some key travel there by the looks of it. You know, it does yeah, look a lot better and it's, it's, it's one man who's doing this project and uh, it's pretty good. So the orders, orders are limited at the moment because, um, you know, he's, he's creating them himself, but you do get this whole self-contained 8-bit computer and um, it's 190 um, pounds at the moment which i, I think is quite reasonable for something like this you know where you've got lots of custom components and uh it, it also comes from a legacy of like older computers like these little homebrew computers and kits uh, the rc 2014 uh was one that we've mentioned on the show before yeah. and there's a lot of stuff that's kind of compatible with that as well what what, what do you think of it dan i think this is really interesting because i mean i've seen several of these around, you know, similar kind of projects, but generally, and they kind of mentioned this on this article on hackster.io that I'll link up in the show notes that tells you all about this project. Most of these kind of mini kit computers these days rely on either ARM-based processors or they kind of just, you know, emulate old hardware. But actually, um, this device here, the Micro Beast by a guy called Andy Toon, the thing that's really interesting about this is it's actually got a real Z80 processor. Yeah, yeah, very, very popular processor. And that's actually running at um, 8 to 10 megahertz, which is pretty good. And um, it seems that he's developed the core. So he's got the hardware there that's been developed, that's kind of out there. And he's developing mm. the core, but he's also developing an emulator at the same time. So you'll be able to, you know, develop software and then kind of fire it onto the machine. And I kind of like the idea of having terminal in this smaller little display, but I, w I wonder what's going to come out of this. Like, are we going to see, you know, custom cases? It's quite a, a thin profile like device. Are we going to see custom screens and uh, all sorts coming out of this? So I think it's got a really good idea and a, a lot of future. It measures, it's really small actually, 235 by 160 by 35 millimetres. 
Um, you've got a 47 key keyboard in there as well with a unique 24 character display with 14 segment elements. So it looks really interesting, the, the design goals of it. One thing that he's mentioned is, and I think this is a really good thing about this, is, you know, we've had the component shortage for a couple of years now. One of his design goals is to pick only currently manufactured and available components. That's so smart. hopefully he's not going to kind of run out. Yeah, now, so, now I've um, got a question. Is this something that you would try to attempt? Um, <laughs> I must admit, I mean, I haven't done a hell of a lot of soldering. I, I thought you years. bought I all think, the kit, Dan. <laughs> I did buy all the kit, but I haven't used it. <laughs> um, I've done kind of some through-hole soldering. I'm getting better at it, though. I mean, you know, I've kind of... I'd like a solder sucker before, but I've kind of got into, you know, using solder braid and that kind of thing. I think maybe, you know, the price, I, I get the price is probably what it needs to be for something kind of custom like this now, but maybe £190 is just a bit much for something that I've probably got a, <laughs> well, I was going to say 50%, maybe an 80% <laughs> chance of actually ruining. So um, maybe I'll practice on something. Yeah, bit, I, I you know, think it's nice because it's, it's a computer. You're still using a computer, yeah. but also it's kind of like you're away from a screen. Yeah. You're just focusing on that task and it it's you're doing something with your hands, which um I think is really cool. So it looks like a great little project and I hope he doesn't um you know get overwhelmed with the amount of orders and stuff because they seem to be limited. But uh, I think this is gonna be very popular. Yeah, and I think just the satisfaction of having built your own computer, you know, from from components, I think that's exactly. really cool. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I built this. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to get hold of one of those, um like you said, hopefully we don't overwhelm him, but we'll put a link in the show notes at the retrohour.com. Now, there has been a long tradition, and particularly over the last kind of few generations of consoles, um, probably going back to like, you know, maybe even the PS2, that often console manufacturers would sell consoles at a loss and they would make the money back, not on hardware, but on software licenses. You know, it's kind of been a, a model that a lot of them have followed. I, th- I don't think Nintendo do, but I know definitely it's been the way with Xbox and Sony over the last few generations. This is an article about, you know, console wars. And there's a document that was submitted in June 22nd in a court hearing by Microsoft. And obviously, I mean, there's always been these, you know, the, the tussles between various gaming companies. Back in the day, it was, you know, Sega versus Nintendo. Last 20 years or so, it's been Sega, Microsoft and Nintendo. But obviously, there's been, you know, all these cases recently of Microsoft buying companies and all these rumours that, you know, they kind of want to put Sony out of business and all that too. But actually, it turns out in this, um, this document that's been submitted to the, the court hearing, it turns out that Microsoft have admitted that they've actually really, really lost the console war to Nintendo and Sony ever since it entered the scene with the original Xbox back in 2001. And they're saying, you know, even the GameCube and particularly the PS2 absolutely trounced Xbox by a significant margin. And they admit that, look, we've lost the console wars and their rivals are positioned to continue dominating. It feels so like defeated like defeated like reading it like it feels like we've got no hope we've got no hope but the thing is they're not they're not giving up like you know kind of reading the article it's a little bit like mixed emotions for me you know um there's been all these kind of like leaked documents and rumors that the next xbox is expected in 2028 so they're not like bowing out of the console war Mm. or, or anything like that it just it just feels really kind of like you know underwhelming but then in the same respect, it's just like, I get, you know, they often sell at a loss and stuff like that. But they're pretty much saying that they they, they hold 21% of the market, which, mm. you know, sounds relatively low um, compared to PlayStation and Nintendo, who I can only assume own, 
you know, the other kind of like 40% each, I think they're pretty much, it's kind of saying that they're kind of equals. Um, there might be like 1% elsewhere with, you know, other brand off brands and stuff like that, or even probably less than 1%. But, you know, it, it's like, yeah, it's 21%, but it's 21% of like the biggest media in the world. Like video yeah. games is bigger than Hollywood. It's it's huge. Do you know what I mean? So that's still billions upon billions of pounds or dollars or whatever, you know, that they've got that 21% stake in. And it, it, it just... I don't know. It, it just feels really underwhelming for me. And I get it. It's like, yeah, you're in third place and PlayStation and Nintendo are just crushing you. And I think a lot of it could be because Xbox have got such a small market in Japan. And obviously Japan is such a yeah. huge cultural, you know, video games is such a big thing for them. I think that that's probably where they're kind of like falling down. But I was surprised to see that they were third in the sixth generation mm. with GameCube and PlayStation because I, 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 I could be wrong. Um, I didn't think I thought the um, the Xbox out sold the GameCube, and maybe it did. Maybe now I'm saying it out loud, and it's probably because of the Game Boy Advance and stuff. You know, Nintendo have got that that market share because they've got their handhelds and stuff like that, whereas Xbox doesn't have that. Because I'm sure the Xbox outsold the GameCube. People might be screaming at me right now. Kind of talking about a market here, which is you know three dominant companies in it, and mm. like stuff like the Evercade is not going to have a. Uh, even very a close Not percentage yeah, yeah, yeah. any of them. Yeah. Whereas, the Atari uh, VCS, the new one. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you go back to back in the days and you'd have stuff like the 3DO out and you'd have yeah. like tons of machines and um, CDI and all of this. And I really wonder what the kind of percentages of those ones would have been and, and what would be seen as a success. Like, I don't know, is, is Microsoft kind of saying, you know, oh, we've only sold this many units well, and it's... Th- yeah, th- th- they are. So they say. So they say. Um, since the PS5 and Xbox Series X came out, uh, the Series X slash S has sold twenty three, no, twenty one million units only. It's only sold twenty one million units, and the PlayStation Five has sold thirty six million. It says the Switch has sold thirty six million as well, but I'm sure the Switch has actually sold like a hundred million. Um, Don't mention the Wii U to Ravi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Thirteen million. Oh, wow, 13 million. But it's like, okay, yeah, it sold 21 million. I'll compare it to PlayStation, which has sold 36 million. Yeah, that's a massive gap. But it's not like the gap of, as you've just said, the Wii U compared to the PS4 or Mm. the Dreamcast compared to the PS2, where the Dreamcast was like, what, a couple of million? Like, and the PS2 was like 200 million. Yeah, you've got like... that's you're, you're defeated. That's like, yeah, okay, we're bowing out. See you later, Sega's, you know, packing <laughs> And then, packing and then if backs. you think of the whole handheld market that they had as well, you had stuff like the, yeah. the Wonder Swan in there as well. And uh, you yeah. know, that's only yeah. 3.5 million. And it's kind of interesting to see that, like, this this kind of battle for the mm. for the ground because it is just dominated yeah. by three companies now isn't it yeah and that's the thing i also think this can change as well i mean we look back at the seventh generation the xbox 360 was clearly in the lead wasn't it for most of that generation yeah and i'm looking at in the t- total sales for that 360 sold 84 million units but then at the end of that generation the ps3 just overtook it and that sold um 87 million in yeah, the but end then, so what did the Wii do like 160 million yeah, I mean the Wii was by far the biggest <laughs> yeah. of that generation, but I think yeah. in, in terms of in terms of you know Xbox versus PlayStation, it looked like the 360 was gonna until yeah. probably the final two years of that generation, which was a long one. You know that yeah. was like a eight nine year generation. Yeah. Um. So it can change, and that's the thing. But I mean, I'm reading this article, and to me, it does kind of sound like 
Microsoft is saying. So, I mean, this, the whole reason this has come about is because obviously of their, their acquisition of Activision. Mm. And, you know, Sony are basically saying that, you know, they still want to get Call of Duty. You know, that's where this has all kind of come from. If, you know, if, if Microsoft own Activision Blizzard, then they're worried that they might not get one of the lead selling games on the platform. But I think to me, it just kind of sounds like Microsoft are kind of saying that, look, we don't really want to be all that much in the console market anymore. And this is a reason they want to kind of go down that, you know, a digital service provider. Well, there's, route, they're, they're you know, also, like a of a game. they've also got like, you know, back in the days you had a definition between the Xbox and the PlayStation, yeah. you know, whereas now they play a lot of titles that the other one plays and they, it's just, there's a bit of a graphical definition. Of course there's exclusives and stuff, but then you look at the switch and that's just totally totally nintendo and totally different to, to the other two so mm. maybe it's more of a kind of battle between sony and microsoft that uh, this is about and that's the thing i mean generally the prices tend to come down of the hardware as well you get like you know slim versions of consoles and stuff as well and i did read a rumor that apparently there might be and I, this must have been a joke a uh, a playstation 5 pro there was like kind of a mock-up image of that I saw the other day online that was like double the size. I thought I'd scrape along the ceiling. The so, Xbox uh, Series X Pro, it's as big as your fridge freezer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, interesting to hear that Microsoft have basically said, look, since 2001, we know we've been the underdog. Um, but yeah, I don't think they're doing too bad, are they? So uh, interesting little read if you want to check that out. Now, before we get into our chat with uh, Todd Fry, he's coming up in just a moment. Um, this is always really exciting, particularly for you, jokes. I know you... Uh, you love your Mega Drive, as we mentioned. And now you love uh, you love Metroid as well. Now, this turns out this is a an unofficial version of Metroid yeah. Mega Mission for the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, Metroid Mega Mission. Um, this is a fan project that's kind of coming off the back of... We've covered a few of these. It's Mega Final Fight, which was an arcade port of Final Fight to the Mega Drive, which was fantastic. Um, there was a Mega Drive version of Castlevania Symphony of the Night which, you know, was quite a bit of a dumbed-down version, but graphically it looked fantastic compared to the PlayStation version. But yeah, this is Metroid uh, Mega Mission for Sega Mega Drive, which uh, comes from uh, a guy called Genesis 814, which looks looks really cool. It's, it's in its early kind of days at the moment, and it's uh, just an early demo. But graphically, um, and kind of like the playability of it, looks really, really, really close to the Super Nintendo version. Um, and really kind of like, you know, obviously we've got like HD screens and stuff like that now, but like the height, the definition of it looks fantastic. Samus seems to play a little bit heavy compared to the original, in my opinion. Um, she seems a bit weighty, not quite as floaty. Uh, but like I say, really early, really early demo here. And then there isn't any enemies or anything like that in the demo yet. But at the moment, it is just a kind of two, three minute clip. But, you know, definitely one to kind of, for us to keep an eye on and see when uh, this might drop and see if it actually runs on Mega Drive, you know, through uh, EverDrives, etc. I love the look of it, though. Yeah, mm. I think I haven't played this game before. It kind of reminds me of something you might have got on the, the Game Boy Advance or something like that. Yeah, there was a, there was a look of it. Yeah, there was a few Metroid uh, games for the Game Boy Advance. Um, and that's actually a really good comparison, actually, because of mm. color wise, palette wise. I think the Game Boy Advance, uh, Metroid Fusion and I forget what the other one was called they probably edged out graphically the Super Nintendo version mm. of Super Metroid. And yeah, I think the palette of this kind of probably a little bit more on par with those versions, a little bit a little bit more colourful than the Super Nintendo version. But yeah, if to actually see this run on a Mega Drive maybe a couple of months down the line uh, yeah. will be will be stunning. But yeah, like I said, the only thing putting me off it is just 
the kind of weightiness of it when you jump around. It, look, and it stuff. looks fast, like really quick. The, yeah, the animation of the character maybe a bit too quick. Yeah, maybe. Um, but the Metroid games are kind of quick games. They're right. not like that slow, methodical, methodical kind of games. They, you know, it mm. looks about the right speed for those kind of you know the the old sixteen bit. Um, I think it's a jump animation to me that kind of looks a bit stuttering. Yeah. I mean, like you said, this is like I imagine not even an alpha version. It's just a, literally a you know two minute demo of what could be. Um, so they're getting the engine down first, and I imagine kind of those finishing touches, and hopefully the rest of the game will follow. I mean, we don't really know much about this, whether it's getting a full release or how it's going to be coming out. If it even is, it might just be someone showing off kind of what they can do. But I think it is quite interesting to see. It's always cool when you see kind of what were originally console exclusives coming out on their rivals, isn't it? Yeah, very cool. If you want to check that out, I'll put that. And everything else we talk about, you can see it in our show notes. You don't have to Google around. Have a look on your podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Todd Fry, he's coming up in just a moment, going inside the world of Atari back in the day, talking about their biggest selling title, Pac-Man, of course, and the legendary Sword Quest series. Let's take a moment to give a big thank you to our longest running sponsor. Come on, guys, let's show some love to Bitmap Books. How much do we love Bitmap Books? We adore Bitmap Books. I can't actually wait to meet up with some of the guys this weekend as well, because I absolutely love Bitmap Books, and they've been a huge supporter of the Retro Hour for a good couple of years now, good few years. Yeah, they're going to be selling books at um, Ravi's event this weekend. Um, Kickstarter's going to be coming along. Mm. Definitely check out their store there. And one of their books as well that um, I was chatting to Sam, and he's really proud of this one. Now, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the, the PC Engine. Have you ever played one before? I, I do like the PC Engine. I've got the PC Engine Mini. and uh, mm. Oh, yeah, some, yeah. Yeah, there's some wicked kind of exclusive PC Engine games, some exclusive Castlevania. Well, there's an Castlevania game on there, uh, the Bonk games. Are really really good uh splatterhouse which is a absolutely stunning game if you're into horror and kind of evil mm. dead and stuff like that um all have really really awesome graphics you know pc engine is a funny one is it 8-bit is it 16-bit but i think it's got a real distinct kind of graphical pixel look to it which i absolutely love and this book is celebrating the box art of pc engine titles mm. and looking at these i mean they're absolutely stunning it's, i mean obviously it was a it was a Big console, uh, mm. particularly in Japan, uh, by NEC. And I think, you know, particularly for, for us, this side of the pond, where it wasn't all that popular, it's quite interesting to kind of look at, you know, what was happening around the other side of the world. And, you know, in Japan, it was um, really part of a movement. It was that, you know, this, this aesthetic image that emerged in Japan that very soon we would spread across the world, you know, influencing art, design, and creativity. And it is a real look at kind of what the, you know, the company's games and movies and music and design and fashion, mm-hmm. all of that in Japan that was going off at that time influenced each other. And you look at some of the box art of these games and these in themselves are works of art. I mean, they're absolutely gorgeous, really vibrant. And this book actually celebrates all the diversity and the sophistication and the personality behind some of the most interesting Japanese releases for the PC Engine. Now you've got, you know, some of the games you mentioned there also, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition, you've got Devil Crash Bomberman. Oh, which yeah. I think Bomberman 93, that was an originally a, uh, a PC Engine exclusive when mm. it first came out. And there is 300 professionally shot pieces of box art in here, spanning over 372 pages. Now, if you've ever seen a bitmap book book before, I mean, they really lead on the design, don't they? And they, they are by far the highest quality, most beautiful retro gaming books. Oh, yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. The quality on them is like, you know, they're the nice big coffee table books and they've got some proper yeah. weight to them. But yeah, 
just every kind of like detail and aspect to them is just absolutely beautiful and you know there's there's no kind of like blurring or smudge there you know with any of the artwork it's 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 displayed kind of just beautiful yeah and actually the the cover of this i mean since i saw this it really stood out to me it's an exclusive cover by will overton from uh, mm. you know rare and super play magazine back in the day and uh, this is now a new collector's edition so if you're interested in the uh, pc engine and you want this real celebration of the system and it's uh, amazing titles back in the day this collector's edition is limited to only 2000 copies and it will never ever be printed again ever So if you want to get hold of this, I'd recommend that you do it right now. I'll link that up and check out the rest of their retro gaming books as well. They've done so many over the years. And a massive thank you to our friends at Bitmap Books. Their website is bitmapbooks.com. And a big thanks to Sam and the team for their continued support of our little show. Now, Todd Fry, our special guest, is coming up in just a second. Uh, First of all, to quick mention that, you know, we do have a patron that helps us keep the lights on here at Retro Hour Towers and helps us bring the podcast out to you every single Friday. But we're not all take, take, take. In fact, we have a wonderful community around this podcast. If you join, you'll become part of and you'll get invited to uh, definitely our highlight of the month. Usually last Sunday of the month is when we do our patrons hangout. Now, we do at least one of these a month, but actually two last month, where we all get together, a couple of hours we hang out and literally anything goes, isn't it? Anything retro, anything geeky. I'm trying to think of some of the topics we were talking about on last weekend's hangout. It was all over, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was interesting because we were talking about TV advertising, but uh, also like magazine advertising for some of the older consoles, um, stuff like the PlayStation adverts when they came out, but also like the Dreamcast ad campaigns as well. And uh, some of the more controversial adverts that came out as well and got pulled off TV um, when they were trying to get, you know, risque and get to that like younger generation and the cool teenagers and all of that we even talked about uh you know when you've been tango (laughs) which got banned at my school because it was a thing in the uk called the happy slap and then kids would like slap around the ears and i remember everyone getting detention for did you have red ears for a long time (laughs) orange ears and uh (laughs) we were on about hacking cable boxes and american cable and the difference between cable with the uh american system and the uk it was it was really interesting yeah, back in the day when you'd uh, slip your cable engineer 20 quid to enable a few extra channels for you. <laughs> so uh, that's what we talk all kinds of things. A lot of retro gaming talk as well, obviously. And uh, this is something we do once a month. So if you'd like to get invited to uh, the July Hangout, now would be a very good time to join us on Patreon. And also you will uh, unlock, if you join us as a gold member or above, 36 episodes, it will be. So we're recording a new one next week, of our bonus exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. And uh, lots of extra stuff. You get uh, an episode that's longer of this normal podcast every week you get about 15 minutes of extra news and we take all the adverts out as well so really good to join us on patreon help support the podcast and of course we do welcome in our new inductees each week into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and that is the retro hour hall of fame and i'll let you guys induct our latest members hall of fame who we got joe and Lee Mintram. No relation there, Joe. This is a different Joe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you so much for your support, Joe and Lee Mintram, who joined us on Patreon over the last week. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hours Patreon community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Right then, next on the show, we're going to be going inside the world of Atari, talking about Pac-Man, that controversial home port, the legendary Sword Quest series, with our special guest, Todd Fry. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast.
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And today it is our pleasure to welcome on a true legend of the industry, known for the best-selling Atari 2600 game of all time and also the legendary Sword Quest series as well. Let's welcome on our guest this week, Todd Fry. How's it going, Todd? It's going well. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. And uh, we're really, really excited to hear some stories about Atari. I mean, you know, we've had many Atari people on the podcast in previous years. Good Nolan Bushnell, we had him on for our 100th episode. And obviously, you know, the the most legendary gaming company. So it's always wonderful to hear some uh, inside baseball talk, as it were. But I mean, before we get into all that, it's always interesting to kind of find out a bit of background on our guests. I mean, I mean, you personally, do you remember what kind of got you into this whole thing? What was your first ever computer experience where did it all start i took a course an after school course when i was 13 in uh once a week in fortran programming portal at junior high school here in the el cerrito california and it was amusing to me because we didn't have access to a computer so the teacher provided us with these um forms these templates for punched cards We'd write the Fortran program out, and he would take it home and come back the next week and tell us whether it worked or not. Not because he'd run it, but just because he'd done the bench check. Uh, and that was my very first exposure to computers actually using them. And I enjoy, and I'm a mathy kind of a nerd. And I just call that out as like, you know, 1969. But my family moved to Berkeley in 1971. And, uh, or was it so? Yeah, in 71. And I, um, I took a computer programming course, which was punched cards and Fortran. And I fell in love or vice versa. Computers may have just like zombified me. I mean, I've been a computer freak, P H R E A K E, ever since. I just love programming computers. Well, um, Berkeley was an interesting place back then. It was kind of on the cutting edge. And uh, what kind of access did you have to to mainframes and systems? Oh, well, that's like, therein lies. Um, So Berkeley High School was, um, most of my friends had parents who were professors at Cal. And um, my father wasn't a professor at Cal. um, but And there was a facility. So we started out punching cards wrapping a rubber band about them, put them in a box, and the teacher would drive them down to the local computer sent to the uh, school district administration center and run the programs overnight, come back the next day. But then Berkeley bought a little mini computer, a Wang 3300 that could do basic right there. And then there was a person who was the head of the local forest service computer center his son was a senior at Berkeley High, and he got major local computer centers to donate computer time to Berkeley High. So we had access to the, no one has ever heard of the Univac, like SS90, no, not the SS90, that was a different thing, um, like supercomputers. Literally, through remote batch, um, I had access to the same supercomputers that the federal government had, basically. Uh, that's Lawrence Berkeley Labs mostly for the CDC 7600s they had. I think they had two 6600s and a 7600. So it was, um, I had access to the most powerful computers in the world basically when I was at Berkeley Hunt. 
Were there um, any games being played on those machines at the time, or was it mainly used uh, for like, research? Really. I mean, first, first off, my friend Ian Shepard, who was the person who got me to Atari, later, you know, eight years later, and I, mostly he, wrote a little computer game up at Lawrence Berkeley that was like a little robot combat game. But uh, mostly there was, it was just punched cards. So back then, mostly you didn't have real-time access to computers. It was mostly, this is not entirely true, but it was, no, there were not much by way of games. <laughs> I mean, you'd punch your cards, you'd wrap a rubber band around them, you'd put them in an input queue, you'd come back an hour later, you'd have a printout. I guess you could have played, you know, so no, there were no games. Then. Well, so then we got access to a computer, a time-shared computer system at Berkeley High, and my friend Andy Fuchs and I wrote a kind of a text-based adventure game. It was about, um, okay, so this was 72 in Berkeley. It was about buying and selling illicit drugs and the cost of, like, you know, getting caught and how much it cost to smuggle and how much stuff cost in Mexico and how much you could sell it for in Berkeley and it was a fun little, just a huge mess of if statements. Was that, was that drug wars? No, it was it was just a little private computer game that he and I wrote. It never got published. It got it was kind of popular among some of the students at Berkeley High. Things were very small then, in terms of what was you know. I think Pong was being invented at at the same time, far away. But there weren't even that many people using computers. It's like if you had 20 people in a, we had 3,000 students at Berkeley High, if you had 15 who even knew that computers existed, it was like a big deal. I mean, obviously, when we got into the, the late 70s, the, the kind of microcomputer revolution happened, you know, when systems like the Altair and the Imsi started coming along. I mean, were you aware of this and did you get hold of your first home system? Well, so I do remember in high school, getting a data sheet for a system called the Intel 4004. And it's like, we looked at this and went, wow, this is cool. You could make a computer out of this. So then timesharing kind of became available, you know, timeshared basic systems uh, over teletypes and the like. I did see the Altair coming along, um, and I wasn't really a homebrew kind of person. I did go to the Homebrew Computer Club once mm. um, over in, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. I don't think anyone really, remotely, you know, I don't think Apple, I don't think Wozniak and Jobs were there that day. I don't really paying attention. My first, I got a 6502 evaluation kit called a SIM-1, a KIM-1. It's a keyboard input monitor dash one, 6502 microprocessor evaluation board. I had a, six digits of hexadecimal display and a keypad. <laughs> and so, that was from Commodore, wasn't it, or MOS Technologies? That was, I think, yeah. from MOS Technology. Um, Commodore, so right around then, what you started to get was you were getting the CPM machines. Um, I forget what that, control process monitor. You were getting the CPM S100 cards for 
medium-sized, small commercial home computers. But that's when, right when you started to see the Commodore PET personal electronic transactor. I mean, the Commodore personal electronic transactor and the um, Apple II. And I got involved in a computer, I'd call it a techno-hippie collective in Berkeley, where a bunch of us got together and bought an Apple II. That was probably circa 78. So that was when I started to have access to personal computers. And the Apple II was revolutionary, really. Yeah, we spoke to so many developers, you know, from that era who said, you know, the Apple II changed everything and really helped kickstart their career. I mean, I guess that was a case for you as well. I mean, let's talk about how you kind of entered the industry and kind of talk us up to what led you to join Atari then. How did that journey work? Ah, so you go back in the way back machine to like 72 when we were getting access to, um, we were allowed into the Forest Service Computer Center I ended up getting an after-school job with the Forest Service when I was 16, programming in Fortran for them. I think it was more a, uh, you know, so I got a security clearance and I got a paycheck and I was making minimum 425 an hour, which, you know, to a 16-year-old was not nothing. Um, and one of the people, Larry Kaplan, who is a name in the history of computing from uh, being one of the early people at Activision, was a Cal student who had an internship at the same computer center that I did. And my good friend Ian Shepard, who at the time that I started programming was a senior at Berkeley High when I was a sophomore, um, he was like the most sophisticated computer programmer at Berkeley High I aspired to become the second most goal I think I attained. And um, he also got a job. He got a job programming security systems at Lawrence Lab when he was, before he went to college. And so Larry Kaplan, Ian Shepard, Todd Fry. Larry graduated college and went off and did something and ended up at Atari. He brought his connection, got Ian an introduction to Atari and he got hired at Atari. Now, in the meantime, I had left high school and got a job as a carpenter instead of going to college, but he got an injury and I said, okay, I'm going to go back to programming computers. And I started looking and Ian got me an interview at Atari and I interviewed well and got the job. So it does go back to Berkeley High and the Computer Center, there's just a whole, a direct sequence, a linkage from me to Ian to Larry to Atari, or vice versa, from Larry to Ian to me. What was the atmosphere like at the time then? Because we've heard heard tales of Atari and, you know, you, you mentioned there was a kind of hippie atmosphere in the uh, tech industry at the time. What was it like? It was actually not just like any one thing. It was not drunken orgies in the hot tub. I've heard of that. That may have been happening. That may have been happening, but, you know, I couldn't prove it by me. It was very um, sink or swim. There was, like, really no onboarding. And there were various cohorts. I happened to be in the, you know, 
pothead programmer cohort um, with some other people who, of course, would be nameless because that's them. And, but there was also uh, some very, very much less colorful people who were very um, hard work. So here's the thing about Atari. Um, to get anything done on the kind of systems we had was in extremely difficult hard work. There were no easy tasks at Atari. There was nothing that was really simple. So there are some stories over the media, all of which are true probably about me, being stoned, being drunk, usually on off-sites. There's very little about me being, there's a sprinkler lobotomy in the office later, but um, what it was like was really hard work. It was really hard work and um, some lightweight partying along. I mean, lightweight partying to me is like just being a little bit stoned a lot of the time. Well, I guess you're working that hard. You need to let your hair down a bit, don't you? Well, you know, I called it a, you know, it's like an instant vacation, you know, a half hour vacation. And um, so actually, let me see if I can go back and answer the question. You know, one thing that happens is um, I've gone back and looked at it. We have a reputation for having been like, you know, uh, bunch of partiers yeah as if right that's how 60 you know that's how you could write code that runs in just 76 cycles across a vcs scanline not new it's like it was 99 percent hard work and one percent for me wild partying not even wild party one percent um pharmaceutically assisted relaxation well obviously i mean you know one of the well, the biggest selling Atari 2600 game we mentioned was the uh, the home version of Pac-Man that you um, you did. And I was interested to kind of hear what was your initial reaction to getting that job? Because I did read that you you actually wanted to work on the, the home version of Defender instead of Pac-Man. What, what kind of happened there? Well, okay, so to the best of my recollection, my first project at Atari was even crazier than the Atari 2600. It was a breakout for a 32 by 32 LCD system that used the AMI S2000 chip, and the S2000 chip had 2K bytes of program store and 64 nibbles of RAM and a 4-bit ALU. And, you know, these days you might call it a microcontroller or something like that, but to me it had an ALU, it had an instruction pointer, it had an instruction counter, it had if statements, it had it was a computer. It was just a very small And that was heck of fun. And then I did a version of Asteroids for the Atari 400-800. And that was, um, I, you know, it's a, it was hard. And it was my first project there. And I, I, I always go back and wish I'd done better. Because I, I, I had a real effort. This is, I'm answering your question. Um, had a real effort getting it. I ended up having to use medium res graphics instead of high res graphics for the asteroids of the ship. And that was an issue with the amount of RAM I could expect a person to have. And it didn't, it, it played fine. It looked fine. Um, but I wish it had been better when that was done. I think that's, we're on to May of 1981. Now my manager at the time said, we have two projects that need to get done. Defender and Pac-Man. You and this other programmer are available to start pro- projects. You guys choose between yourselves. And I was a passionate Defender player. 
and I had not much interest in Pac-Man. Pac-Man, Defender, you know, the games from Eugene Jarvis, Defender and Robotron, at very least, were like, I consider that to be like some of the box sonatas of video game development. I mean, they were just genius. So I cannot give praise to Eugene Jarvis and guess Midway at the time that is not, that is too high. It's like, I love Defender. Pac-Man, okay, but it didn't grab me. However, it was a job and I'm a professional, believe it or not. And uh, so I went to the other program and I said, look, I don't care you choose. I do care, but I don't really, you know, what's important is that I'll do whichever one you don't want to. A couple days later, he came to me and said, I don't see how you can do Pac-Man, so I'll do Defender. And uh, so I did Pac-Man. Well, you you had quite a strict timetable on Pac-Man as well. How did that impact the war? No, that's not actually true. I mean, so people confuse and conflate E.T. with Pac-Man. I do not remember having any explicit timeline for Pac-Man. Now... I stopped my recreational pharmaceuticals or my pharmaceutically assisted relaxation while I was on Pac-Man, for whatever reason. Um, But I do not remember any management direction about when it had to be done. Now, there may have been. Um, Back then, games took roughly six months it took roughly six months to ride a 4K cartridge for the Atari 2600. At the time, and this is part of the whole story, the whole history, um, the 4K and the 8K carts weren't quite available when I started Pac-Man. And they were not considered part of the normal you know, um, inventory of possibilities. You know, back then, the lead times were long. The lead times were... You know, mass ROMs, um, ROM manufacturing, you know, semiconductor manufacturing lead times. So it was like six months from finishing a cartridge to shelf. I do not remember any aspect of schedule pressure. I just did it as fast as I could. Well, one thing I'm quite interested to hear about is kind of your thought process in, you know, that obviously it was a well-known arcade game at the time, but I mean, you did make some changes, including the, you know, the two-player gameplay aspect that was kind of prioritized as well. So why did you decide to go down that route then? And what challenges did that create? So that's interesting. So the coin-up game was two-player. Like coin-up game, you know, you could start a two-player game, play until you died, and then switch to the other person. So you could have this experience... That was built into the coin-up. That was normal, actually, for games. It was very common for coin-up games back then to have a kind of a two-player mode where you would kind of compete, uh, maybe compete, you would kind of compete um, with another player turn by turn. And I actually, to the best of my recollection, never seriously considered not including that. To this day, I actually think that the... You know, being able to, I didn't think of it as a solitary experience. I thought of it as playing with another person, which I endorse as a human value, actually. So I did not add two player, but I 
really worked within the constraint. I never considered not doing two-player, which is really weird to go back and look at this. So when I started out looking at the Atari 2600, is basically built to do cake, you know, to have some walls, which became the dots and the maze, and to have an enemy tank and a player tank, which becomes a ghost and a and a Pac-Man. So it's really, really, really does not want to have more than two objects on the screen at once and a fixed background. And it is really strongly opposed to having four ghosts and a and a Pac-Man, just in terms of the way the hardware works. So by then, we were programming the Atari 2600 well outside of what was, it was designed to do. One of the really, the, so I really, really thought hard about how to reduce the amount of flicker because I wasn't going to be able to put, so had I insisted on putting four flickering, non-flickering ghosts and a Pac-Man on the screen, I would have had to make it so no, so ghosts lived in zones, in bands, one above the other. Because you can't put two ghosts and a human player and a Pac-Man on the same part of the screen horizontally. So I never even seriously considered that because it's not like Pac-Man. And I'm not sure this is the right thing. I was thinking about this just the other day. Um, but you know, it's like 40 years later, I'm still thinking about whether I should rewrite parts of the game. So I wrote a display, we call them kernels, which could handle any combination of two players above each other, below each other, passing through maze channels. You know, it's very fairly simple. If I'd done this thing where they hop to rows and you never had two player two ghosts on the same row, going back, I think I might have been able to get away with this, right? Because, oh, it's not Pac-Man, but it comes to a vertical channel and jumps. And it jumps when it's clear. So other ghosts, so two, they change... Both go up, one goes down, one goes up. I'll have to think about this. Um, if they had jumped vertically and moved smoothly horizontally, you might have been able to get away with that, and I might have been able to figure out how to do it with way less or with no flicker. But I was trying to write a display which would only flicker the amount necessary so that if two ghosts were down at the bottom of the screen and a ghost with one ghost was in the middle of the screen and Pac-Man and ghost was at the top, there would be no flicker. Only if there were three objects that wanted to be in the same horizontal region would it then start flickering. And if you put all five of them in the same horizontal region, then it would start flickering. You notice I keep on talking using the word flicker because I was working on that and I have the display that did that when I started working on the algorithm that would make it so that arbitrated which ghost got displayed when. And that was a very complicated thought process for the Atari 2600. And then my boss said, wow, that is really interesting. No one has ever tried anything like that. No one had tried variable flicker before. And I went, wow, why am I doing this? This is hard. And I said, okay, that's fine. Flicker does flicker. Pac-Man doesn't. And shipped it like that. So that in truth, I've gone back and looked at it. I actually recently gave a small presentation on If Only Ida. 
on a algorithm that would have just not done the four ghosts flicker and the Pac-Man doesn't, but just would have said, there are two things I can draw. There are five things I want to draw. What happens if I just flicker everything on a two-fifth duty cycle? It would have been a lot less flicker and it would have cost least 10 bytes of RAM, I think 15 bytes of ROM rather, and maybe four bits. The problem with using just four bits of RAM is that you have to mask it. Well, aside from the fact that I don't think there were four bits free, and I don't think I had 15 bytes of ROM left, I'd have to go back and do some juggling. There are other other ways to manage the display to the algorithm to actually correctly allocate display slots to reduce flicker to the minimum uses a lot of RAM. The easy mm-hmm. one uses a lot of RAM. I wouldn't have been able to do two-player and absolute minimum flicker. You know, it, it does sound to it as well here in this, you know, kind of the, the design of it as well and kind of the, the technical limitations you're up against. It, it does make sense now. But I mean, at the time, I, I know some of the reviews did give it a bit of criticism that it was quite different to the arcade version. I mean, how did you kind of handle that at the time? Well, okay, so Atari had a rule because back then there was a thing called uh, phosphor burn-in, right? Color televisions, actually, if you left the same image on it, it would burn into the screen to the chemistry of the materials, to the light-emitting materials on the screen. So we had a thing called attract mode, which would start changing the colors and moving things so that you didn't all have the exact same colors on the exact same spot, particularly in a brightness. So we had phosphor burn-in to contend with. And one of the corollaries of that was there was a rule that said, if you are not doing a space game, you can't have a black background with colored objects on it. Because the black background with like white stars or the black background with, like, a white maze or a blue maze is exactly the thing that would cause bad phosphor burn-in. So the rule was, if it's not a space game, it can't be black background. Now, Pac-Man itself had a black background with a blue maze. I find this to be almost very, very fascinating. It did not occur to me that it had to have the same colors as Pac-Man Arcade in order to be pac I thought if you had ghosts and a maze and dots and a Pac-Man, you'd be Pac-Man. So I put a light orange maze on a light blue background, as I recollect. I'd have to go look at it because it's like I'm... Yeah. And that obviously did not look like Pac-Man. And in addition to that, Pac-Man, the game, had these channels to the left and the right that you could scurry out of and circle around the screen. You leave the right side, you come back on the left side. And the nature of the beast is that in the actual display generation for the 2600, you're already doing unique things at the top and bottom. It's like specific individual code that only runs at the very top and specific individual code that only runs at the very bottom. And to have put channels in the middle, I would have had, right, a different kind of row than the ones that have dots and maze walls. It would have had to be, you know, just way more work to put it on the sides of the top and bottom. I put it at the top and bottom. I thought, you have a channel that can be used to go 
around and around and good enough. So looked wrong. It flickered. The dots were long bars like soap bar lozenges instead of dots. Like fruit was didn't look like fruit. It's like, Jesus Christ, give me a break. Um, <laughs> I mean, really. So, you know, you say that some, you know, I mean, basically it's one of the most reviled video game releases in history. Let's be honest. There's a tremendous amount of criticism of the ways that it differed from the coin up. Honestly, I go back and I may have rushed the sounds out without adequate attention. And I apologize for that. I am fascinated by the fact that no one in the whole organization knew that it had to be a blue maze on a black background, right? If I'd, I would have gone and gotten, if I'd known how important that was, I would have gotten a waiver. I would have said, Pac-Man must be a space game. It's got to be black and blue. It's got to look like Pac-Man. Fact of the matter is I thought it played enough like Pac-Man and felt enough like Pac-Man that it was Pac-Man. Well, you worked on a, another legendary series, which was uh, Sword Quest. How, how did you come up with that idea, and how did it get started? Well, so we were having there was this question of what are we going to what are we going to do to follow up Adventure, Warren Robinette's Adventure, which was a interactive video game graphics game that was very similar in feel to the text based dungeon adventure game that was there. And, um, you know, at the time, my friend Howard, Mr. E.T., Howard Scott Warshaw, was doing games like um, uh, Raiders, where he combined puzzle elements, and, you know, almost, almost an action-adventure, I would say, because it was a Twitch game with thoughtful puzzles. If I do this, then that. We were at a brainstorming session large corporate brainstorming somewhere in Monterey. And I just got the idea. So there's two facets to Sword Quest. One is the literary element of it, right? It's a hero's journey. It's a grail quest. It brings in the mythical background of like the four elements it brings in the Zodiac and the Kabbalah and the I Ching and um, the Caduceus of Mercury, which is highly correlated with the Sanskrit chakra system. So it had all of this stuff all tied together as um, a literary framework for this story. And, and I kid you, yeah, this is really honestly the way I felt about it. It's like, it's a hero's journey. It's a grail quest. It's got these elements tied back to ancient mystical systems. I mean, literally ancient mystical systems. And Warner Communications, our parent company, also owns DC Comics and Franklin Mint. So let's do a contest. Let's build puzzles into the game that you actually have to solve. And then have DC Comics write comics and explain the story and have some of the clues from the puzzle and have Franklin Mint make the actual physical prizes. And um, it was a very, I, you know, I just like edit, I just censored the word grandiose. Um, it was a very ambitious 
that web network of all of these components that fit together. I'm very proud of the concept. And the games were meant to be some of the very, you know, I say this with no intentional self-aggrandization, some of the very earliest action-adventure games, which were meant, you know, more even more than adventure. Adventure was not actually a... Um, a hand-eye coordination challenge game at all. It was strictly an intellectual game. Go here, try to figure that out, is a puzzle. These games we were intending, I was intending, the vision was you actually battle your way through challenges. We're like raiders, actually. Battle your way through challenges and get the information you need to figure out an adventure. So, for instance, in uh, the first one, and I did not code these games. I coded, I coded Fireworld, and I started coding Airworld. But um, Earthworld was done by Dan Hitchens, and it used the concept of the map of the rooms. It's like when you left one room to another, you go, where does this tunnel go? And if you drew out the map of the tunnels, you would end up with a picture of the 12 zodiac signs, and there are, you know, the earth signs are connected to the earth signs. There's four different triangles built into the middle of the zodiac, and all around the circle was one set of channels, tunnels, and across from fire sign to fire sign and fire sign to fire sign was another set of tunnels. So if you drew the map of the room, you would end up with a picture of the Zodiac. Maybe. I mean, that's what the picture was. And then it had a lot of bits and pieces of imagery baked into it that were about that. And then it has a puzzle baked into it. And the puzzle, it was very ambitious. Yeah, especially on the 2600. I mean, it's... uh... And I know those games, I mean, obviously we'll get into kind of what happened with the series, but I'm quite interested in that background of the the promotional contest things. I mean, that it's really well known for that, you know, the, the real-life treasures that people could win. I mean, where did that idea come from? And have you got any kind of behind-the-scenes memories of that? That was just me going, we own Franklin Mint. Let's make, let's make real prizes, literally. I mean, it was, it was a brainstorm. We were at a brainstorming session, and that was a brainstorm. I mean, I am, as best as I recollect, we are now, we are talking about more than half of my life ago. I was the first person ever to link Atari and Franklin Mint. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I just like, you know, I mean, it's like, it just came to me. It's like Franklin Mint made all of these kinds of collectibles, plates, um, little bits of jewelry. I don't really know, but they made, honest to God, valuable collectibles and they were a sibling company it's like let's let's link up with them and actually make this game put some skin in the game it's like this will be really really fun it'll be really fun to actually solve this puzzle and get a shot at a prize well, what was your original plan for Airworld? Because um, Airworld was like a part of the Sword Quest series, but it, it didn't end up getting completed. Um, why was that, and how, how did you feel well, about it? Well, okay. So my original plan for Airworld was that it'd be based on the I Ching. So we went Zodiac, Kabbalah, Chakra System. I don't know that much about Sanskrit, so that was the best I could do. But it is foundational metaphysical or physical 
you know, mystical kind of information. A bit of a Berkeley hippie there. And um and the I Ching, right? The I Ching is foundational as far as mystical systems go. And what I was trying to do, where I stopped Airworld, I don't consider Airworld will be done until I recently someone released something they called Airworld. And um it wasn't. <laughs> it was I totally endorse what Atari and uh, Digital Eclipse did there, but it's not Airworld. You can call it Airworld, but it's not Airworld, aside from the fact that it doesn't even run on a 2600. I was going to ask, were you involved with that version that came out as part of the Atari I was aware of, and I was consulted, and I, um, I, I go, this is great. This is great. It's too bad you're calling it Airworld. Um, <laughs> my vision for Airworld was that for each of the hexagrams of the I Ching, which is going to be six binary lines, a yin-yang and a yang line, which means you're going to have 64 unique play screens. I wanted to be able to derive from the six binary lines a set of gameplay rules that would make the gameplay be emergent and defined by combination of yin and yang lines and trigrams so where i stopped with the game was trying really hard to find a way to make 64 interesting games that were defined by a formula from the six-bit binary number so i was doing things like one version is if you're in a yin line, you're chasing, you're trying to, there's things moving in each of these six bands, very much influenced by um, Taz, actually, or Quad Run, I think it was, by Steve Roida's really interesting game. Steve Roida had a really interesting game where there were just um, objects in horizontal bands, and you as a player would jump between horizontal bands, and you'd want to do different things with different objects. So there was one where, you know, so what I was looking at is you jump between horizontal bands, and in some cases, you're trying to grab as many of the things in horizontal bands as you can, and in others, you're trying to dodge them. So I was looking for this. If you're in this trihexagram, if you're in a yin-yang, you're trying to grab the objects. If you're in a yang line, you're trying to dodge them, and then... The rules of the gameplay will have this formula, which will make a game a unique, 64 unique action games. And the thing is that a lot, once I started this, I found out that a lot of the games that I was coming up with were just plain stupid. Like the one where they're trying to hit you and you're trying to um, pick them up, right? So there's, I'm trying to grab these objects. These objects are trying to avoid me. That's a not entirely boring game. They're running away. I'm chasing. The one where they're running to me and I'm running to them is kind of dumb. <laughs> uh, the one where, you know, based on pairs or triads of lines, they're moving fast and, you know, you're slug, you know, maybe I'm in quicksand, so I'm moving slow and they're moving slow is actually kind of interesting. But the one where they're moving slow and I'm moving fast is kind of dumb. So, Maybe a third of the games I was getting from my formulas were like 
You know, it was a third of them were actually kind of playable. A third of them were sort of like not so playable. And a third of them were just plain kind of dumb. So that's where that whole inquiry landed. And it's interesting because it kind of landed like my, how would I do the fair visible slot allocation for a um, on-demand Flickr system, which, you know, 40 years later, I still think about it once in a while. 40 years later, I still think about what is the rule set, and maybe I'll do this as a hobby project on a PC when it's easier. What is the transform? What is the formula from the I Ching, the six-bit number to fund gameplay of those rows. I, I, I still think about it. And usually I think about it and go, oh, no, I got better things to think about. <laughs> so that's what- Well, I mean, I think fans would love to see that, though. I mean, would you ever do that, maybe actually do Airworld for the 2600? I like, think probably consider doing Airworld. So I'll tell you this about that. So it is really hard to write Atari 2600 cards. I remember it fondly. Oh, that was such a fun challenge. But I go back every now and then and try to start a little bit of retro exercise. It doesn't feel as fun as it did 40 years ago. It feels hard. I think it's hard. So I would consider, I do bring into mind the idea of, right now it's more aspirational than intentional. I actually think that for me to finish Airworld would be a lot of fun. It would be a lot of fun for, you know, some people like uh, Ernie Klein told me that Adventure and Sword Quest were the most important games to him when he was young. And um, and I'm really touched by that. And there are people who said that they really found Sword Quest to be really, really engaging and really important as a part of their youth. <laughs> And that's really wonderful. And so I would consider that the making 64 games without a lot of, with a, you know, if I add a little bit of code here and there to maybe fix the games that suck, it's not what I want. I want one formula that takes six bits and makes 64 useful gameplay experiences out of that. And it, that may be not possible. I think in terms of legacy, I mean, having the, the series complete, you know, by you, I think that would be I just a, a great way to wrap it up, wouldn't it? So the way where I landed Sword Quest is I had this whole flying screen, this screen with a, on the horizon, 64, the trigram scrolling so you could fly around and home in on a hexagram in the middle of the screen and fly straight to it and it would expand to fill the screen. So one thing, I think, I think that um, Airworld has to be an 8K card. There are companies out there that make, you know, total 2600 cards I mean, what today, I'm saying so. is, is that between Pac-Man, when 8K wasn't an option, and the end of Sword Quest, I mean, Fireworld's an 8K card. Because in the intervening two years, in the intervening year, 8K became the norm. So I'm a bit of a purist. I'm not going to do a 16K card, for God's sakes. Yeah. I, you know, it crosses my mind. I don't know that I have the gumption. 
Uh, and hypothetically, I could find one of the young, one of the um, homebrew coders who's there. There are people out there who are really good twenty six hundred coders. Well, one thing I've got to ask because I know my our audience wouldn't forgive me if I didn't, being that there's been so many people talking about it over the years. I mean, do you know the eventual fate of the prizes? Because oh, I know there's rumours that you know, you know Jack Tramiel might have had it in his house. Or- I actually, I, I guess I, you know, I, I'm 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 allowed to have regrets. I paid very little attention to all of that. It's like by the time I was done with part of the with my part, a the whole creative direction and story running, and b writing a cartridge, I was on to the next programming and game development challenge, and I have no idea at all what happened with the prizes. There's some guy, you know, rumor has it that one of the prize actual prize winners melted it down and sold it for parts so he could go to college. I believe that one of the prizes is actually in someone's safe deposit box. And the real question has always been what happened to the sword of sorcery, which would have been the the $60,000 prize that um, we think, and no one knows. No one knows. But we think maybe it was in Atari's hands or the Tramells got it. It's entirely possible that it got lost between um, Franklin Mint and Warner and Atari. I know nothing about the connection between Franklin Mint and Atari. I would assume that somewhere at Franklin Mint is a business record, unless it's a Trump-owned company. I would assume that somewhere there is a business (laughs) record, which is an invoice or a receipt or a shipping. I don't know. It was 40 years ago. I know nothing about the prices. I never saw one. There could be a documentary in that, though. That sounds it's fascinating. Something. Where did? Yeah, well, this would be an investigative journalism kind of story. Well, Todd, it's been uh, incredible hearing some of your memories about you know your time at Atari. It's just uh, obviously you know the, the golden age of video games and when it all started. So it's been wonderful to hear it from you. I mean, today, I mean, I know you still go to conventions and stuff as well. Are you still kind of involved in in the gaming world? Um, well, I work for right now. Is my I've been consulting at Bethesda for a little a little bit on Starfield and um, I'm hoping to get a situation where I'm consulting on the Elder Scrolls 6. Right now I took some time off and worked um, on Internet of Things for a solar power company and I spent some time at an AI startup. I was burned out on games 10 years ago but now I'm um, I'm thinking about games again. I'm back in the games industry. Um, I've been on Starfield for a year. I'm leaving them. I uh, hope to go back, maybe, for Guardians. And I'm just kind of feeling into what's happening in games now. I, I consider myself to be a tremendously fortunate person. I really enjoy using, working with people to use technology to develop engaging entertainment. Oh, I'm glad to hear that passion still burns strong, Todd. And if uh, you know, if you do decide to do your version of uh, Airworld and get it out there one day, we'd love to have you back on to hear about it. So, uh, okay. well, <laughs> so keep in touch. It. It's <laughs> yeah. probably at least three months of really hard work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I suppose there might be. Is there money? In? Um, <laughs> I'm sure there would be some. I'm not sure how much. Maybe three months worth of compensation. Well, thank you so much for your. Um, I hope I was informative and entertaining. And uh, thanks for your company. 